memorandum to personnel from management. Re, humanity's never-ending struggle for meaning. It has come to our attention that there are those amongst you that feel this is an arena wherein to cultivate some plot of sensitivity to the world and coupling that with individualized experience to, theoretically, produce some expression of subjective truth, re the human condition, which serves to fulfill both the creator and a supposed audience by reminding them of the still uncharted vastness of the soul and its interplay with quotidian existence. This insidious sentiment has had a deleterious effect on both productivity and, more worrisome, consumption. While it's not unusual to feel tethered to a metaphorical hamster wheel, going in circles for the cruel amusement of those in power in exchange for a few mass-produced pellets which do nothing more than keep you alive, please know this is the proper state of things. There is a hierarchy, and it exists for your benefit so that you know where you stand. Your employee handbook has a detailed list of accepted classifications ranked by status and an equation by which to reconcile seeming contradictions. Men are more important than women. People with money are more important than those without. Men without money are more important than women with money in the public square, but less important in places with lots of dark wood, Scandinavian furnishings, or where coffee is drunk cold. Those men or women who were not born as such should be ignored entirely, no matter how much money they have, etc. If it is any consolation, we at management are only looking out for you as continuing down that road would have no effect on the established order. See ERA 1982, Voting Rights Act 2013, and would only result in the employee incurring financial penalty, social ostracization, snickers behind one's back, and snickers to one's face. And you'll miss the new episode of Dancing with the Stars. In short, why bother? You're just going to look stupid and no one's going to like you. And where's the meaning in that? Wow. I was suggesting maybe a quicker intro would just be to do this. What can I do what a way to make living? I mean, yours was good too. Oh, but like nowhere near as catchy. I mean, this is the whole movie in a song, Chris. I don't know what the hell that was. That was the same thing as this, just with uh, no, that's got music. You delivered one side of the movie 9 to 5, and I believe I just delivered the other. That's all. So <laughs> we are here to talk about the 1980. Wow, that's a long time ago. 1980s, Colin Higgins, written and directed. Rewriting the original script by Patricia Resnick. Shout out Patricia Resnick also. Film 9 to 5. Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, Dabney Coleman. A movie, Chris, that I think every, certainly every woman who was of a sentient age in 1980 today will have an immediate affection for this movie. I'm talking about my wife. She mentioned that. <laughs> she remembers seeing it. She counts. People would leap up in the movie theaters and applaud. I remember my mom, single working mom, big fan of 9 to 5. So I was excited to see it again. I wasn't sure what I was going to get. I did the same thing. I do remember. I didn't leap up because while I was sentient, sure. I was still pretty young. But I do remember it very, very vividly. And actually, I haven't seen it in full since then. I probably so I haven't do, either. I sort of wasn't sure uh, how it would age and... Um, I actually don't remember. I mean, I'm sure I saw it with my parents, considering my age. I don't remember what my mom's reaction was. Mm -hmm. I don't. I haven't mentioned it to any of my sisters or anything mm -hmm. like that, so I don't know how much it stays in their consciousness. Yeah. Something interesting to find out. For me, it's a tale of two movies. The first 45 minutes or an hour or so are so spot-on delightful. The setup of the three female characters, Dabney Coleman in orbit with each of those characters in unique ways. Um, the office construct, what's going on in there, I thought is just so masterfully done. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a great, tight 45 minutes. Then, unfortunately, this is one of those movies that takes a turn away from that into the whole kind of slapstick thing where all of a sudden there's a missing body and they think there's a corpse and they capture it and they drive it around and then they actually get him and chain him up and hold him captive for some reason. I'm still not entirely 
clear on and there's a whole rigmarole and subplot stuff that to me gets away from what was great about the first 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I agree that it doesn't all work as well. And it's interesting, you know, Colin Higgins did not live too much longer. I think he died in 88 and he did not have the longest career or even in, you know, in that time, he didn't produce that much. But I'd be interested to look at more of his stuff as a director because I think the the biggest problems with those things. Because actually, I liked the, you know, they end up kidnapping him after yeah. thinking that uh, they had accidentally killed him. They yes. kidnap him to keep him away, to blackmail. I actually sort of liked that escalation and how it mixed their fantasy of having power with taking the power. All of that was good. It was in some of the execution that it was a little bit flabby. So I liked the script, I think, more than the direction. Though even within that, like there were parts in that second third that I thought worked so well and were still very insightful in ways that were outside of the workplace. And then the very, very end was a little too... I was thinking of this movie in comparison to All the President's Men. Uh, this, I mean, who doesn't think of those two together in well, the same Well, in breath? terms of uh, Jane Fonda uh, yeah. shepherding it in the same way that Robert sure. Redford did. Yes. And uh, it was pretty interesting to read about that and how they had gone, you know, what it had inspired her to want to make this movie. This is one of the early films from her company, IPC, mm-hmm. and it was based on a friend of hers, Karen Nussbaum, who had worked with an organization in Boston called 9 to 5, and they had different stories. They were more dramatic, more less dramatic, and sort of ended up settling on this comedy, and as Jane Fonda put it, quote, it remains a labor film, but I hope of a new kind, different from the Grapes of Wrath or Salt of the Earth. We took out a lot of stuff that was filmed, even stuff the director, Colin Higgins, thought worked, but which I asked to have taken out. I'm just super sensitive to anything that smacks of the soapbox or lecturing the audience. You know, she is somebody who's very associated with her politics, but being very conscious of that politics coming through in a comedy, I think it works for the most part, even though, like I said, there are some elements that it does feel like it's trying to stick in established formulas a little bit too much. But uh, but hey, it's Hollywood. I understand why they sort of took the turn that they did. It's one of those screenplays where you can kind of imagine it working better on the page than on the screen. I was reading about Colin Higgins, who only directed three movies. As you said, his life was tragically cut short. He died of AIDS in 1988. His directing credits, he directed the Chevy Chase vehicle Foul Play in 78, 9 to 5, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas in 1982, which I believe is also a Dolly Parton vehicle. Uh, As a writer, one of the rabbit holes I went down was the Colin Higgins rabbit hole when I read most of a book about the making of Harold and Maude because Colin Higgins famously wrote his first screenplay ever, which is an accomplishment akin or even perhaps greater than the guy who wrote Heathers. Right. Colin Higgins sat down and wrote himself Harold and Maude based on a film school class exercise. Just like the writer of Highlander. You're right. And through an only in Hollywood set of events, ended up working as a pool boy in a home owned by a Hollywood producer. The producer's wife had put a flyer up at the film school saying, pool boy needed, you know, must have car, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) He needed money. He applied for this job. He got it. And he never, it was not a mercenary job. It was like he never expected that it would lead to what it led to. As he was there, he would end up telling the wife elements of this short film he was concocting. And she said, you shouldn't waste that as a short. You should write that as a movie. So he wrote it as a movie. Her husband read the screenplay. Uh, 
Robert Evans, who just passed away this week, yes, or last week, got the script, and through a convoluted series of events, Harold and Maude did move forward at Paramount at a time when Robert Evans was in control. To his credit, and a lot of stuff has been written about Robert Evans in the last week or so, sort of like, which movies does he really get credit for pushing mm-hmm. through, and which ones doesn't he? You know, in Harold and Maude, he definitely worked the system to the advantage of the film. And Colin Higgins was at one point attached to direct the film, but they gave him some money to shoot some scenes, and he said later in his life, he realized he made a tragic error, which was he wanted to show them that he could do a lot quickly. So he picked three scenes instead of one and shot all three. But he's like, what I should have done was just done one scene really well. But of course, Hal Ashby ends up attached. And from Um, what I read, I think they had a pretty good relationship. Hal actually didn't really want to direct and said, this guy should direct, but then ended up making some pretty important casting decisions, which I think resulted in Harold and Maude being as special as it is. Obviously, Ruth Gordon, Bud Court. Uh, So- that's where Colin Higgins' career started, which is crazy. Then he wrote Silver Streak, Foul Play, 9 to 5, um, and a couple of other Harold and Maude offshoots. Uh, in reading about it, it said that he Harold had quite a bit Maude. of, yeah, I was going to say, in France, the play I version remember. of it did great and ran for like seven years, whereas I mean, here, I think it play. closed within hours. Oh, did, did they do the play here? I think it's, it, right, there was a Broadway production that I think uh, did please not Please tell me it well. wasn't a musical. I don't think it was. I think it was probably the same play, but there was a Harold and Maude musical, that oh, premiered okay. at the Paper Mill Playhouse. Okay. If I can quote TalkingBroadway.com's headline, Harold and Maude, Paper Mill musical delight easily surpasses classic cult film. Yeah. So obviously <laughs> the musical is better than the film. Uh, Wanted to mention that. I was reading a book about the making of Harold and Maude and the tone of it is what was so amazing and is still amazing. 1971, that faux suicide element that occurs so much throughout Harold and Maude, right? Right. Like you meet the main character, we think he's hung himself and he's just staging a series of suicidal pranks to try and get a rise out of his mother. That fully formed tone to me is so on display in that first part of 9 to 5, which I really love as like a comedy of the workplace of a type I don't think we had seen before, taken entirely from the secretary's perspective Mm -hmm. and what they've got to deal with on a daily basis. And it does so in a way that's so funny and so sharp. And to me, ironic, because it's impossible to imagine anyone other than Dabney Coleman as that character. And even though it's this feminist movie... You need Dabney Coleman in order for these three stars to orbit around and spark off of. And they're so good with him that for me, when he's removed from the movie, for all intents and purposes, at the halfway mark, then the movie starts to suffer. It's like one of those lessons of taking one of the people off the screen and realizing like, oh, God, we can't do that. Uh You know, we need him to be continuing to interact with these characters when he doesn't really after the whole hospital scene where he conks himself out and then there's the mistaken body thing. When they have him captive, there's not really any scenes other than him just being in a ball gag and like it's like a visual joke that just doesn't really add much to where we're going. I would have much rather seen more of them actually making the office work for themselves in a way that's sort of only kind of shown in a visual term at the end when he's when he returns to the office. We see them drafting the the memos and sort of saying the things, but right, yeah. it's sort of glossed over in almost a montage and then yeah. you see the effects afterwards. It's like you see the furniture is different. There's a daycare. There's all these things like that they did. Uh, but for me, nothing is as good as those battles between him and, and the three stars. Like they're so funny together. Yeah. And you have three actors in Dolly Parton, Jane Fonda, and Lily Tomlin who are so different from each other mm-hmm. comedically, but really all 
so good. And, you know, I don't know if this counts as being within the realm of them sparking off of each other, but the fantasy sequences. Yeah. I mean, you get, like, those yeah. to those me are, are also, not only are they funny, but they're so illustrative of the characters. Yeah. And I think there is also something about, like, and I think as two men, you know, <laughs> this understanding of the anger that builds up over, like, these small slights, let alone the big slights, over the course of time and just how much that rage becomes part of a person's life. Chris, and how I didn't know you were married. Oh, oh, wow. You dust that joke off. But I mean, showing it in the movie. They, they rival uh, Song Remains the Same with Led Zeppelin fantasy sequences. I don't know what that is. But um, those fantasy sequences. Hello, heart. Looks like you've gotten yourself in a spot of trouble. Judy? Judy, you've got to help me. That mob has gone crazy out there. They're trying to kill me. Well, why would they want to do a nasty thing like that? I don't know. I'm not such a bad guy. You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. Who doesn't? Is that any reason to kill me? You're foul, heart. A wart on the nose of humanity, and I'm going to blast it off. Oh, Judy, Judy, Judy. Goodbye, boss man. It's quitting time. <laughs> and how about unbuttoning that coat and your shirt? You need to loosen up. Yeah. That's better. <laughs> now, where were we? The memo? Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, I got a surprise for you here. Mrs. Rhodes, I am a married man. Forget about your wife, Frank. I mean, you may be hers in the evening, but you're my boy from nine to five. Here, I wanted to show you what I got for you. Isn't that pretty? Yes, it's pretty. It's very pretty, but you shouldn't be buying gifts for me, oh, Mrs. Rhodes. Okay, let me put it on you here. Oh, that wasn't so bad, was it? No. I think there was something in that copy. I think you're right. I think it was poison. Right again. I think you did it. Ha, 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 ha. Oh. But why? Why? Why do you think? Because I'm a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. Bingo. You mentioned the commentary track, which if you read anything about this movie online, you'll inevitably come across someone saying that the commentary track on the special edition DVD is bonkers, and it is. They're not in the same place as they're recording. Oh. So imagine the worst over-talking each other conference call. That's what it's like, which is unfortunate because you really lose the opportunity to hear a lot of real stuff about the making of. Though you do get a lot of fun stuff because, you know, I hadn't watched it, but I did read the, um, on the IMDb, the trivia thing. Oh, yeah. It's mostly quotes it's all taken, taken from, that, from, yeah. from there. And some of it particularly, uh, you know, spoiler for 1980, whatever is uh, 9 to 5, in the end with like the daycare center thing, I guess, when one of the bosses is holding this baby. And I guess Lily Tomlin is saying like, I think that baby turned out to be Laura Linney. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, it's true that she said it, but it <laughs> the person on IMDb is like, this is not true. <laughs> it is not Laura Yeah, Lane. there's also another part where they're where they're watching her garage door opener sequence in the mm -hmm. beginning of the movie, which is a harbinger of how they're going to hoist him up in the room mm -hmm. later on. And also an indication that Lily Tomlin, who is a uh, I think she's a widowed mom. She's a widowed mom. She's of doing four it all. Boys. She's fixing the garage door opener. She's having a very frank discussion with her teenage son about yeah. pot. 
Um, and she's running the office. Like she's, and she's obviously running more the confident office, than everybody else. Which I there. thought she did really, really well. I think, you know, the thing that's cool about it is like it doesn't mock down at the secretarial level. You know what I mean? Like she's the one who actually is doing everything, which makes this scene where she is passed over yet again for a promotion she well deserves all the more poignant and angry, as you said. What? Now let me finish, okay? And don't go flying off the handle. You gave that promotion to Bob Enright instead of me? I've got five years seniority over him. I know that. For Christ's sake, I trained him. I know that, but see, the the company... Oh, the company bullshit. It's your decision. You promoted him. You tell me why. Well, in the first place, see, Bob does have a college degree. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. While he's away at college getting his precious, useless degree, I'm working my butt off at this company. And in the second place, he does have a family to support. And I don't? What has that got to do with anything? Violet, look, my hands are tied here. The company needs a man in this position. Clients would rather deal with men when it comes to figures. Oh, now we're getting at it. I lose a promotion because of some idiot prejudice. The boys in the club are threatened, and you're so intimidated by any woman that won't sit at the back of the bus. Spare me the women's lib crap, okay? Now, I know how you feel, and I understand it. You understand zilch. I understand I'm still a boss here. And even though you might be pretty valuable out there, you better get a hold of yourself. I'm not going to sit here and take this. God damn it. Lily Tomlin. For somebody who is a comedian, first and foremost. Dramatic actor. But that is great dramatic acting. For a movie like this, which I thought of as sort of more of a trifle. But look, but it does have some real insights, I feel. Especially in the way that the three women, their situations are very different. True. As you said, Violet is a single mom by... She's widowed. Yes. <laughs> and as she put by it. By death. By death. Single mother by death. As she put it. She's very willing and she needs the job. She's recently divorced. <laughs> so, and I'm a widow with four kids. Jerry should never have died. I could, I'd be better off. I could have divorced him. Versus Jane Fonda's character who yes. is recently divorced. Well, who's been left. Who's been very well, recently divorced and pointedly left. Doesn't want to be. Well, but then she does come to want to be yes. as when he comes crawling she back. She gets liberated. And actually in that liberated scene, that scene is so funny. And Jane Fonda is fantastic in it. And then, of course, the last one is Dora Lee, played by Dolly Parton, who is still happily married, mm-hmm. but who is ostracized by the other women in the office because of a rumor spread by the boss that he's stooping her. Yes. And she's she's a, such a winning personality. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about Dolly in general. Those three different situations and then what they go through in terms of dealing with management and the difficulties. There's obviously a fractured power base even within the employees and yes. stuff. There's a lot of like real insight to it. And again, you know, kudos to to Jane Fonda for letting that stuff be there while it still is a real piece of crowd-pleasing entertainment. Also, shout out to Jane Fonda's brilliant non-verbal comedic acting yeah. on display <laughs> in some of the early scenes. Jane Fonda is one of, it's like her and Peter Fonda, it's hard for me to think that they would have become stars were they not the children of Henry Fonda. I can't think of a Jane Fonda acting performance that I'm blown away by or that I'm like, wow. I think of her as a personality and a presence and a cultural figure who had resonance in our lives because of her activism and also because of On Golden Pond, which when I was a kid growing up, that was like such a big deal that Mm -hmm. here was a movie where she was in with her father and they were acting out some of the actual tensions and difficulties in their real relationship. But in this movie, she's she's given probably the most thankless of the three roles, which to her credit as a producer, she allowed herself to be given, you know, the dowdiness and the frumpy clothes and the 
I mean, she could be in a movie from the 1940s, really, mm -hmm. when this movie starts. She's from another time. She's wearing these pussy bow blouses and has this crazy hair and these old-fashioned the glasses. But I think is really meant to be, that because of her marriage, buying into this systemic mm -hmm. thing that asks little of her and allows little from her, she has settled into that. And it's almost like Captain America waking up out of the ice 40 years after World War II. She'd been outside of the world and then re-enters it and has to adjust to it. I guess. Um, it's just compared to the Lily Tomlin backstory, the Violet backstory, even Dora Lee being played by Dolly Parton has elements of caricature to her just to begin with, but has that Dolly Parton undercurrent of the joke's actually on you, not on her. No, yeah. It's just a little lightly sketched. Even the scene with her husband played by Lawrence Pressman, who has left her and shows up in a little red sports car with the new girlfriend. You know, he's like of the era that the movie's in even. She's like from the 50s. But when she does the whole business with the copy machine that runs amok, her comedic acting, her nonverbal comedic acting was amazing. True. But I also think with the lines in the second scene where he comes back after literally stalking her. Yes. And here's another thing that... <clears throat> I wasn't clear how he got to the house. He, he followed said, like, her? He said, I followed you from work a couple days ago and I've been casing the joint for a couple oh, okay. days. Stuff which I'm yeah. sure in 1980 was considered normal, but now... Well, what's the turn? Uh, he realized life with the girlfriend wasn't all it was oh, cracked up to be and he the, wanted she, to go back to, she left to Judy? She left oh, him she left in left their, him. Okay. the midst of their vacation in... Wherever, and then not only is he crawling back, he misinterprets seeing Dabney yes. in in his uh, getup, and he then has the uh, gall to take the moral high ground. Yes. What's going on? Nothing. Who's in that room? Nobody. Let's go downstairs. Judy, there's somebody in that room. Let me see. Good God. Oh. Who was that? A friend. Obviously. So, that's what you're into now. Bondage. What's that? Bondage, S&M, sex games. That's right. All of it. I'm into everything. Now, get out of here. I can't believe it. Who is that guy, anyway? He's my boss. Your boss. <laughs> you're having an affair with your boss. Isn't that typical? Just like you had an affair with your secretary. But, Judy, this isn't you. You can't be serious. Don't you tell me what I can or can't do. Those days are over. And if I want to have, have an affair or, or play, play sex games or do M&Ms, you can't stop me. M&Ms? As a matter of fact, I smoke pot. I can see what that kind of living has done to you. Well, I've changed. I'll say, and not for the better. And to think that I actually came here tonight to ask you to come back to me. Huh. Fat chance. Back to what? Your leaving was the best thing that ever happened to me. If that's the way you feel... There's, there's nothing more to say. Oh, yes, there is. Hit the road, Buster. This is where you get off. This is the scene where uh, where Jade Fonda's character kind of grows up in the yeah. sense of, like, embracing things very clumsily and awkwardly, but over the course of the scene really does take on this liberated persona. And I, I think that scene is super funny, and I thought she did... Uh, did a great job with it. Let's look at a little of Dolly Parton as Dora Lee. Oh, sweet YouTube. Hold on, getting there. Ah, no, not Violet. Dora Lee. <laughs> Try speaking into the mic. Dora Lee, computer? Computer, here we go. Dora Lee, would you grab your pad and bring your pretty face in here, please? Yes, sir.
Hold it right there. What? Turn around a second. Something wrong? I got something on my dress? Nothing is wrong. As a matter of fact, everything is very, very right. Shall we begin, Mr. Hart? Yeah. Um, take a letter to um, Vernon Henshaw over at um, Metropolitan Mutual. Dear Vern, as you know, the chairman of the board of Consolidated Companies, Mr. Russell Tinsworthy, spends most of his time in Brazil working on the jungle clearance operation. Consequent... Oh, oh pencils. It's all right. I'll get it. Here, let me... Let me... Let me help you with those. No, that's okay, really. I've got them. There you go. Okay. Dorley. Yes? <laughs> About my conduct in the office here yesterday. I'm afraid I got a little carried away. I'd, I'd just like to apologize to you. Oh, don't you worry about it, Mr. Hart. I've been chased by swifter men than you, and I ain't been caught yet. <laughs> Shall we get back to our letter now? Well, yeah. Um, but, well, could you just come over here for a second? I have a little something for you. You know, ever since I made that stupid mistake about the convention in San Francisco, I... Oh, Mr. Hart, you didn't make a mistake. You see, I'll just have to make sure that the next time I'm asked to go to work at a convention that there is a convention going on. <laughs> I mean, these scenes are so good. Yeah. You know, and there's three of them where you get to see Dabney being different with each woman in turn. Dismissive of Jane because she's not attractive enough for him to pay any mm -hmm. attention to. Dismissive and downright mean. Oh, yeah. he gets, She gets his anger and scorn. You know, when she fucks up at the copy machine, he just reduces her to tears. With Violet, it's he recognizes that it's a meeting of equals, if not she being his superior intellectual-wise. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Dora Lee, he views purely as a sex object, but because we have Dolly Parton playing the role, she's able to show us how women have to do all the work in this circumstance. By work, I mean she has to both do her job and also find excuses for his inexcusable behavior. Right. She and does constantly so be forgiving it and taking it on as just part of what's the expression for something that like the cost of doing business. You know, like this yeah. is if I'm going to be working in this environment, in this world, this is what I'm going to have to be putting up with. As she put it, like I've been chased by swifter men than you. Like, and I ain't been caught yet. Or um, saying like, oh, it's not your fault. It's my fault. I'll yeah. just, next time you invite me to a conference, I'll just have to make sure there is a conference. Like yes. she's got to do that part of the job. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more it. specific than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway, can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free, 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. Eight Five five seven five 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 three two two. Yeah. Um, now Chris is going to record a clever 
voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's value added. So the the commentary track is chaotic because they're not in the same location. It's the three main actors and Jane's producer who's kind of trying to keep things rolling. But because they're not in the same place, and I don't think any of them had ever done a commentary track Mm -hmm. before, there's a lot of talking over each other and not knowing what's going on. It's kind of hilarious. It's been described as chaotic and self-congratulatory. I don't think that the person writing that meant that mean-spiritedly. It's that there's a lot of celebration of how amazing everybody yeah, is right. and everything. And there's not a lot of discussion because there's so many great actors also populating the movie. Mm-hmm. The secretary who drinks too much, the evil spy. These are great Broadway caliber theater actors that populate right. Elizabeth Wilson. Peggy Pope is the the Peggy Pope. The one you mentioned at first. And if you uh, watched television in the Mercer. 70s and 80s, you know Peggy Pope. It's also funny that this is one of those things. And like you said, a lot of these people, due to the nature and the time when it was made, their faces look so familiar, and yet looking down their IMDb page, like Henry Jones, for example, because he's got such a distinctive face, Mm -hmm. a lot of his stuff is in television. So I don't know if I remember him from that particular episode of Murder, She Wrote, or from Mr. Belvedere, or Love Tell me he was on Columbo. He was not on Columbo, but he was on Mrs. Columbo, the short-lived- uh, ah, spinoff with Kate Mulgrew. Kate Mulgrew, yeah. And wait a second, but you as a Columbo fan. Yes. Uh, well, fans putting it mildly, but okay. Yes. <laughs> Something that I reserve a large portion of my life for, but yes, yes. go ahead. Where do you find the time? Uh, doesn't Mrs. Didn't Mrs. Columbo die in one of the episodes? Of her own show? No, of his show. Well, one of the brilliant things about Columbo was you never were quite sure if there was a Mrs. Columbo Uh because you never saw her in actual Columbo. He referred to her all the time, but because the character was so mysterious in so many ways, you were never quite sure if there was a Mrs. Columbo. When researching Sex and the Married Detective, the guy who was in Candyman, that was the episode he was in, couldn't find the... But when reading about it, I read that there was also an episode that came, I guess, one or two later... uh, Like, Farewell, Mrs. Columbo, Mm. which I think the description made it sound like she did die. You know, I'd have to look up Farewell, Mrs. Columbo, and remember. Um, Did you watch Mrs. Columbo, the TV series? No, because that to me is a demarcating point here where your love for Columbo is going to to be tested if you decide to go down the (laughs) spinoff. This is my question. Is Maybe Superlister R.F. Brown is a Mrs. Columbo fan, probably. She solves crimes as a reporter while raising her little daughter, which does beg the question, like, did they get divorced? Do we, as viewers, as as friends, do we have to choose who we're on the side of? Uh, I think it's kind of like the remake of Wicker Man. It's best just to pretend (laughs) it doesn't exist. (laughs) What what is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! I'm losing my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Dolly Parton. Yes. Jad Abumrod from Radiolab has a new podcast about Dolly Parton. I just got into this last night. I listened to the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. It's stunningly brilliant. What's it called? Uh, Dolly Parton. It's called Dolly Good Parton's America. I highly recommend this for people. It came about because Jad Abumrad's father ended up treating Dolly Parton in a Tennessee hospital, and he became friends with Dolly Parton. And through that, Jad got thinking about Dolly Parton and attended a Dolly Parton concert and was struck by how this one figure had brought together many of the factions of American life that typically have nothing in common. MAGA hat wearing Trump supporter and drag queens dressed as Dolly Parton, Mm -hmm, for example. mm -hmm. This podcast sort of investigates her life, which is incredible, her talent, and the pain and sadness at the center of a lot of Dolly Parton's music and public persona. And that's one of the things that is lacking in the commentary 
if you don't figure out how to get underneath it, you're going to get from Dolly a very polished performance, even when she's talking in an ad-lib setting like mm-hmm. the recording of the commentary. Which is very her, though. It's you know, very Because I've her. heard her interviewed before. I haven't listened to the podcast, yeah. but I listened to somebody else talking about the podcast. Which is close enough. Wow. In that they were saying that quite a bit is spent on her role as a feminist. Is she or isn't she a feminist? Which I think is very interesting, especially considering the public persona that she does put across, which she's very conscious of. And she talks about how conscious Mm -hmm. she is of it. She is an entertainer through and through in the best way possible, because I don't think she ever sacrifices her intelligence or dignity, even when she allows herself to be a part of a joke. Exactly. There's also a generational difference, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, as to how you view feminism as a feminist, depending on where you are and the, yeah. the life you're living. But I think one thing that you do find if you read quotes from her and listen to her is there is like a steel spine at the center oh, yeah. of it that is unbending. And whatever other people might put on her or take away from her or assume, mm-hmm. they will, of course, always be wrong, as people who do that always are. But it will never hurt her because there is a strength and an intelligence. The persona of her and her real personal life are distanced. Yes. You know, like they talk about how yeah. her husband is never seen or yeah. anything like that. And yet at the same time, they're one in the same. It's show business. And she, she mm-hmm. says in the podcast, he's trying to ask her, did it ever bother you to be the butt of so many jokes? And she said, no, because I figured looking the way I did, they were going to make the jokes anyway. So I might as well make the joke. And then I'm in control of the situation. And on the feminism thing, it's funny, the first episode, the first half sort of does a nice little historical getting us up to a certain place. And then the second half of the first episode kind of gets taken over by some of the producers of the podcast talking about feminism and their own experiences with feminism only to then arrive at this critical interview point with Dolly where Jad says, do you consider yourself a feminist? And then Dolly just like pops the whole balloon that had just been inflated saying, God, no, like she will not have that label. Of course, it's much more nuanced. Yeah, you can't be the kind of woman that she is, the strong negotiator, the star, the writer, without being a feminist in the sense of taking care of herself as a woman. Episode two is all about her relationship with Porter Wagner, Mm -hmm. who whose TV show really made Dolly a star and for whom she wrote the song, I Will Always Love You. Mm -hmm. Play you a little bit here, Chris. I know you probably don't, you're not familiar with it. No, no, trust me, I hear this one a lot. This version? People keep sending me links to it. They do? Yeah. The Dolly version? Whichever. Or the Whitney Houston version. Just a lot of people will always love me. Oh, I see. I didn't get the joke you were making. It took a little few steps. The podcast makes the point that this song has been a hit in three different decades, a number one hit in three different decades. That is amazing. It's very hard to think of any other song where that's the case. Are there three different versions, like in the three, or is it her, assumedly, the Whitney Houston one? Um, And then the ALF version on the commemorative (laughs) floppy 45. That also went number one? That went number one. No, I don't know what the three versions are. I just... I just re- I just heard it on a podcast, Chris. Good enough. Okay, I didn't go I didn't go figure it out. Um, anyway, check that. Po- you know, as if you have time to listen to another podcast other than this one that you're right. hearing. Um, we're not some fancy NPR Jad Abumrad podcast, so I get it. But if you're going to listen to one, yeah, we're not going to slow anything down or throw in <laughs> other voices and overlap. And <laughs> but what did you say about what? It, no, I found it was very interesting. There's no crawl. Hold on, think about that again. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good podcast, and Dolly is having a moment. And the sheer talent, the acting, the iconography, the humility, but as you said, the steely spine, all on display in this, her first movie role. Yes. Which is pretty amazing. 
And do you know what movie Lily Tomlin did before this? Uh, Speaking of the full cast and crew cinematic universe. Yes, it was. Well, if you look it up, of course, you know, but I'm asking you if you have recall. No, no recall. I'm I'm stalling so that I can look it up. (laughs) And then make uh, make myself look more. Fargo, no. NCIS? I hate Did she do an NCIS? Yeah. It was moment Moment by by moment. moment, of course. Which, as you'll recall, was the second of three films that John Travolta owed Robert Stigwood after... Saturday Night Fever. That's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is going back. Lily Tomlin plays a lonely socialite and Travolta, a young drifter who enter into a May-December romance. Wow. I haven't Uh, seen it. Okay. (laughs) That answers that question. Have you ever seen I Heart Huckabees? I saw it when it came out. And of course, I've seen the infamous Lily Tomlin in the car scenes, behind the scenes with David O. Russell losing his fucking mind. Fuck you. I'm just trying to fucking help you. Do you understand me? No, Johnny, no. I'm being a fucking collaborator. I was trying to help you figure out the fucking picture. I forgot Those are amazing. The one thing that I remember from the movie itself was, and I'm not a particularly physical comedy person, yeah. but there is a scene where Lily Tomlin is trying to sneak up on something <laughs> and there's it's across a lawn and the sprinkler is going, so she's trying to time it. Yeah. And she's like, okay, ready? Like, one, two, three. And then she starts writing at like the exact uh. worst time. So she's like sneaking as getting splashed by the sprinkler. And sounds like a dumb bit to describe it, but she just she just makes it. She's uh, she's so funny. On the commentary track, I I relate because she's like, was, I think this was my first movie, and they're like, No, what are you talking about? <laughs> you were in Nashville, and she's like, Oh yeah, it's like Oh yeah, how could you forget? So she had done Nashville moment by moment. I also, Chris, I haven't seen Grace and Frankie. Neither have I. That's her reunited with Jane Fonda. I'm sure. I think it's pretty successful. So there's probably gonna be a lot of people who are like, you guys. I was actually talking to somebody in the office uh, who was saying how much he enjoyed it. Oh, really? Yeah. She did do the voice of Aunt May in one of my favorite movies of 2018, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now, did you know, this is totally an excuse to revisit my childhood, Chris, so I apologize in advance. I appreciate the warning. You're familiar with Lily Tomlin's character, Ernestine? Yes. Uh, which I believe she did on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, mm-hmm. but she also did it on one of my favorite shows as a child, The Electric Company. We're gonna turn it on. We're gonna bring in the power. We're gonna light up the dark of night like the brightest day in a whole new way. We're gonna turn it on. We're gonna bring in the power. Huge part of childhood, man. That's like basically tune in, turn on, and drop out for (laughs) six-year-olds. I I saw that she had played Ernestine on that, and I thought, ooh, I get to play the electric company open. You have to just give me a little there. Which, by the way, speaking of cutting things in and out, I was heartbroken to listen to this week's episode, which is now three weeks ago episode. That we recorded? When we released it. Wait, if this, this oh, it's wait. out this week that when we're recording. So, so when, two weeks. when people are hearing this that we're doing right now. Yes, this is, this is coming out in two weeks. Okay. So if you're listening now, it, the episode that I'm referring to right now came out three weeks ago. No, two weeks ago. <laughs> Which one was it? Uh, Candyman. Candyman. Yes. Our Halloween episode. 
I don't, we went to a whole fascinating place and you cut the whole thing out. I can't remember what it was now, but I was heartbroken <laughs> yesterday when I didn't hear it. It was the, the trailer for oh. What's-His-Face's Paganini film. Oh my God, how could you cut that out? The director of Candyman, Bernard Rose, oh also God. directed a film about how, Paganini. Seriously, how did you not make time for that? I, you played like 40 minutes of my stupid rant about the palm sweat commercial. <laughs> You could have cut that in half oh, and put in a minute of the Paganini Oh, movie. my God. I thought if I took even a second out of that, I was that like, my wow, head would get lopped off. He's really letting this go. I mean, we hit every beat on this commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but it actually works because it's, it was, it's a funny yeah. It's a funny bit, but also it's funny for even me to listen to what degree of obscurity I will go into. And, and you were like, is there any other, any other testimony? I was like, are there any other testimony? Chris, there's this guy. Yeah, that was the, uh, so that, and out that, of encouragement. that epic section itself. But <laughs> well, you know, I think like, like, um, if we didn't have Bomb Squad, I think it was yes. to have two trailers. I know. Well, uh, you know what? It's good to have some things that just never were. Yeah. Chris is like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's had- good to have a lot of those. <laughs> When you think of Jane Fonda, what are the what are the roles you think of? Uh, I think of I think of her workout tape, which j- no, <laughs> just because of wow. my age, yeah, that's the first I would hear of her and just think of her, her about that. I did not watch it, but I did have sisters who used it. Um, so that I remember that was a big deal. Clute is probably the actual Clute and Barbarella are two performances that sure. I have seen, and those are so vastly. So different. basically, anything sort of sexualized you're interested in. I mean, in general, that's sort of my. That's where I live. That's where you live. But yeah, those are the two. Those are certainly the two biggest for me. And I was going to say they're so very different. With nine to five and on Golden Pond, Clute's probably the. Yeah, those are probably the three most famous roles for her. China Syndrome's pretty good. That was a role written for a man. I didn't know that. Not just for a man, but for Richard Dreyfus. Really? Yeah. And, and then did Dreyfus he drop dropped out. The role was rewritten. Is there a movie we've done where Dreyfus man. didn't drop out or in? <laughs> <laughs> I think he was never considered for. And then Roy Scheider choppered in and say, "I'd like to do a <laughs> what role about like me? that." I'm an actor. You know what? Actually, a movie I really like. Speaking of childhood, and I saw this with my mom, uh, Electric Horseman. I've, yeah, which is a Sidney Pollack movie with Redford and Jane Fonda. Redford plays a rodeo star past his prime who steals his company's horse and rides into the desert with a feisty reporter accompanying him. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, it's just so of this moment in life. And I always thought I liked that Redford was this kind of like broken down wreck and then only comes alive through the act of stealing the horse and running away with it. And she has a nice little arc as a reporter who's only kind of out for the story to begin with, but then of course falls in love and right. it's good. Yeah. I mean, it was good in 1979. I don't haven't watched it since. But Jane Fonda, like Dolly, is just such an incredible presence. She's a force. And I think more than her acting, I suppose, is her activism. And sure. uh, she's just getting arrested what she's had to twice in the last week. <laughs> yeah, when she doesn't have you arrested. She's doing a hell of a lot more than I am for the cause, um, that's for sure. But she's also so fun and funny. I think watching her talk now is so much more revelatory than yeah. hearing her from back in the day. Yeah. She's a really fascinating subject now. There's been a couple like later in life interviews that she's done that are longer form that are really worth 
checking yeah. out because she had a crazy life and the whole Ted Turner thing. And like you said, she is of Hollywood royalty that could have easily turned into any number of things. But the fact that she took that privilege and made the most of it, that privilege and that physical beauty, you know, she had mm-hmm. been a model. She's yeah. like stunning to look at, but she did not sort of rest on that or make her life True. just about that. She made herself so much more, you know, without impugning anybody's politics. You know, she became very unpopular with a large segment of and the remains audience. So. And remains so. For her stance against the Vietnam War. Vietnam War and specifically going and posing with the Viet Cong in, in Vietnam. In fact, there was an anecdote, which I just think this seems like so very her. A Vietnam veteran saw her at a book signing and spit tobacco on her. The guy got arrested for assault. She didn't fucking blink. She mm-hmm. just like wiped it off, kept it. She didn't yeah. even stand up. She like was stronger than, you know. Sure. Again, I, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about the guy. You know, he obviously feels passionate. But she kept with what she was doing there. Mm-hmm. She had no like, no invectives, no attack. No, she just kept doing what she was doing. And I think that is such an admirable quality. And on the other side of this, is something I read on IMDb. She also revealed on her website that she bathed in the ashes of her golden retriever, Roxy, when she mistook the contents of an urn for bath salts, not realizing which they were until she saw a bone in the water. That's what I'm talking about, like late life Jane Fonda that's so great. You know, I I don't know that I would have the the wherewithal to reveal that if I did it. Uh, But the fact she's like, who the fuck cares? cares, man? It's fascinating to think of all the things that people kept offering her that she yeah. would turn down. But every decision has uh, a lot of, that goes into it. But she turned down a lot of roles that went to Faye mm-hmm, Dunaway, mm-hmm. Uh, including Bonnie in Bonnie and Clyde, Chinatown. Uh, and of course, for all you toddlers out there, she's the voice of uh, Shariki on Elena of Avalor. Oh, I knew I knew her from somewhere. Elena. Let me sing it for you, Chris, because I have an eight-year-old daughter. And uh, this I'm afraid is- we don't have the time. Demi Coleman. I mean, God, he was so fucking funny. Dolly says in the commentary track, you love him even as he's horrible. And that yes. there's a thing that he has. And they were like kind of trying to figure it out because it's true. He does and says horrible things in this movie. But there's some element of his personality and his acting that allows you to just feel warmly and think he's hilarious. I think even the <laughs> scene that we played where he has passed over Violet for the promotion, it's not I mean, he is terrible, but boy, he does not go overboard with it. And he has this like assuredness that it almost makes you think like, huh, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe it's also that he's willing to undercut himself in the scene with the slapstick business with the chair not working and falling (laughs) back. The way that like Dolly leads with the joke about her that she's making before you can make it. He also pops his own balloon before you can. Yeah. So in that scene with Violet, just when he's at peak chauvinistic asshole, he tries to sit down and be all pompous <laughs> and then his chair breaks and he he does this slapstick bit. And that's the part of him that I think is so brilliant. When he's acting, he's aware in a way that you can see, but it doesn't get in the way of the thing that he's leading with, yes. which is the chauvinistic asshole stuff. And they're like, I always think of him in these roles very similar to this, of being like a person, not just a smarmy guy, but like yeah. somebody in charge yes. who's not quite as with it as mm-hmm. they think they are. Under the trademarks on his IMDb page, it says, usually plays characters that are, quote, up to no good. <laughs> Often plays a smarmy, selfish, nervous person with money that's out for himself. And third... His mustache. Oh, yes. <laughs> Never underestimate the power of a good mustache. You had a mustache in your acting roles. Not maybe it's time to give maybe it a shot. Maybe I should. I mean, yeah. I don't know your, your aging, as we all do. Maybe mm-hmm. as you That's approach this last third of your shelf life as an whoa, actor. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
might be time to try a mustache. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Gerald McRaney and uh, these guys are aging. Dabney Coleman. They're aging out of the business. Whatever Sam Houston's name is. Lee Horsley. <laughs> Lee Horsley. <laughs> uh, Tom Selleck. Yeah. These guys, are they're the all, next, they're leaving. Who's the, the next new generation? mustache? Yeah. It's like the Where's guy. The next it's in Williamsburg. Acting mentor and friend of Simon Baker. Yes. I like Simon Baker. Whatever happened to Simon Baker? I think he took the money and ran. I don't even know. Oh, if you know what he was good in? Let margin me call. Yeah. What? You love margin. Call. I do. Have you seen it? No. It's a good movie, man. That's what I hear. I'd like to. You see know what it. else is good? The Rainmaker. No. <laughs> no. The other JC. All the President's Men. No. The other JC Shandor movie. Oh, All is Robert lost. Redford on a boat. Did you see that? No. God, that's good, Chris. Come on, please work with me. <laughs> I can't talk. Work with you. I was watching this <laughs> and enjoying it. Anyway, I liked Simon Baker. You're referring to the mentalist money, I guess. Yeah. Isn't Simon Baker Australian? Yeah. You don't get that. Oh, he's in high ground, isn't he? Yeah. Has, maybe he went back. Maybe he's now still he's around, dude. Australia. I don't know what you're talking about. He hasn't. He's never left. He's he's not gone anywhere. You you have been missing. What what what? Are, wait. What have I been missing? Well, he did. The, he was on the Mentalist from 2008 to 2015. Yeah, that's four years ago. Then he did a movie called Breath. Yeah. Uh, never heard of that. Yeah. Oh, he directed it. After developing an... Oh, Breath. That's based on the book. Uh-huh. Did you read... This is a really well-regarded novel about a teenage boy and his friends who forge a unlikely friendship with an older surfer. I don't think the movie was quite successful. However, it does star my girlfriend, Elizabeth Debicki. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you're only saying this because it's Elizabeth Debicki. When's Elizabeth Debicki coming back on screen? Let's see. Peter Rabbit 2, the voice of Mopsy. Which isn't quite the same thing. Uh, Tenet, filming, 2020. The plot is unknown. It's a Christopher Nolan film. Robert Pattinson, great actor. Yes. Elizabeth Debicki, Aaron Taylor Johnson. Mm. Isn't Aaron Taylor Johnson one of the kids from that TV show with Tim, what's his name? (laughs) Uh, I don't think so. No? He was Kick-Ass. Oh, I never saw Kick-Ass. I thought, what's her name was Kick-Ass? Uh, Is it Kick-Ass a female vehicle? Ginsburg? No. What? No. Kick-Ass. Yeah. Isn't that, what's her name? <laughs> Kick-Ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got Nicolas Cage in it. It's got the girl it. with the mask. It does have a girl in it, but it also has a boy with a mask. He oh. plays the boy, and he's the main character. Oh, I thought the, I always assumed she was the main character. Is it good? It's, not, it's okay. Yeah. It's not as good as the comic. How was Nick Cage? Awesome. Fucking amazing. What, what else are you going to say? I mean, <laughs> he does an Adam West impersonation in the whole like, freaking thing. Uh, intentionally or? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of the other faces that are in 9 sure. to 5, it's populated by. Peggy Pope. I feel like she was on every 70s and 80s TV show as well. There's got to be a Columbo in here somewhere. Well, I would bet if anybody, if it's not Henry I'm not going to make Mac do a Mrs. Columbo cinematic universe. <laughs> Don't worry, people. Elizabeth Wilson as Roz. I think she's the one who has like some serious theater cred. Mm-hmm. American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Where have you studied, Chris? What do they always say with acting? I learned. He studied with. I studied. I did gum acting on the streets. But is there studying involved? It's like you're not really studying. That's like working. Studying with, like teaching. Okay, go read this and. It sounds better than practicing, I guess. Yeah, but practicing is more what it is that you're doing. Eh, I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, reading the script and thinking about it, talking about it. That's involved. That's how you're getting into it. I've never been to an acting class. This is what I think it is. What a shock. You go into like a small theater and there's like some people grouped around a stage. It's your turn. So you're on stage. The acting teacher is like, let's take it from the top. Uh And you do your scene. And he's like, 
okay, here, strip that away. Just get, give me what's inside. That yeah. to me is what it sounds like in acting class. I, I've got it, right? I mean, you've got what, you know, what Barry or the Kaminsky method, what any one episode of those would show you. I haven't seen the Kaminsky method. Is that good? Uh, if you like old people things, it's good, yeah. <laughs> Marion Mercer, who plays Dabney Coleman's wife. Oh my God, she's, she is amazing. She is amazing in general. Uh, and she has such a distinctive so face good. and presence. Oh my God, she's and hilarious. She's so funny. She reminds me of Ray Nicolette in Out of Sight in the sense of like, I can't tell at first if she's in on the joke yes. or not. Yes. And again, going through her IMDb page, I just can't tell which of her many, many mm-hmm. things uh, I remember her from the well, most. Well, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I mean, I think I remember her from that. A good comedic player on a lot of yeah. 70s and 80s TV show things. Probably better than much of the material. Oh, It's a Living. It's a Living is about like cocktail waitresses. Oh, no. I never saw that. Oh, I remember loving that show. I have a little piece of trivia for you. Oh, yeah? Yep. That's related to the movie. If in it's about Laura Linney, she wasn't in it. Not about Laura Linney. <laughs> yes. But I want you to listen to this. song was originally called Nine to Five mm-hmm. and came out in the same year as the movie Nine to Five. And then when this song, which was a massive hit in Australia, which of course, Sheena Easton's native country, uh, know that. was retitled Morning Train. And this is what pop music was in 1980, Chris. That's why we That's... needed Nirvana 12 <laughs> years later. Listen, I was tapping my toes. <laughs> It's a great song, but I'm just saying it's kind of corny. It's not very Fight the Power, but... uh, (laughs) Sheen Easton, she was a big deal. Uh, Is she British or is she Australian? I don't know. I was looking at the uh, 9 to 5... she's Scottish. She's Scottish. If it's not Scottish, it's crap. (laughs) What? No, nothing, nothing. You're right. I was just trying to resist making another Highlander joke because I think three in one episode... (laughs) You know what? That reminds me. Did the Highland? Did anyone actually watch the Highlander? Listen to the Highlander episode? Is that one of our more popular episodes? Yeah, I, mean, I, I thought it was going to be. You told a me cult on the day classic. it was released that it was like, oh my gosh, it's, it's going through the roof. It's through the roof. Let's see, but Highlander. Ah, it's okay. It's it's not it's not one of the still beating top out Light Sleeper. I'm sure. Would you like to know what the top five episodes yes, in the I history would. of the podcast yes. are? Number one, Bohemian Rhapsody. Of course. Number two, Jaws. Of course. Number three, you'll never guess. Um. Um. Monkey Shines. Correct. Number four, you'll never guess. Uh, You'll never guess. I want it to be Last Unicorn, but I'm going to say Robocop. No. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, you know what? I remember the scene. Which is such a strange, um, among the many things I've learned doing this podcast with you, that episode taught me something very fundamentally important. About yourself. (laughs) Which is, I'm always right about movies. No. Really? It it taught me... (laughs) It taught me that what you hear and what you think are not always true. Boy, is that right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about myself. No, no, I, I'm with you. I agree. That movie came and went as far as the conversation starters on the internet are concerned. It wasn't a Bohemian Rhapsody. However, it was a vastly popular film and a vastly popular episode of the podcast. Yeah. It just goes to show you that what you're fed, sheeple, is not necessarily what's really going on. Let's that's, remember yes, that. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, I think that though there might be the overlap between chin-scratchy Coen Brothers enthusiasts 
mm. and podcast listeners. Uh. Maybe, Chris, but that doesn't explain Monkey Shines or <laughs> National Lampoon's Vacation, which is the fifth most downloaded episode ever of the podcast. Um, anyway, Marion Mercer, love her. I think she's like what we would call that guy in a male actor. I don't yes. know what we call it in, I don't like saying actress, actor. So uh, that woman, I don't know, it just doesn't have the same ring as yeah. like the character actor guy. Uh, but she's indispensable. I like that kind of actor because this sort of thing is like she does this thing and it's like if you do that and it gets known, people need that in movies quite a bit. I think like Dabney Coleman, there's something about her, I think because of her height and her thinness, there's a sort of regal mm-hmm. bearing that she has and yet she has such a comedic sensibility that yeah. she can seem high status but it doesn't feel threatening in the same way True. it wouldn't be for a soap opera. It would work True. well in a comedy like this. And of course, yeah. Sterling Hayden for crying out loud is in this movie. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> it was not the best part of the movie. But it was also so fleeting. One it, scene. Sure, literally. sure, sure, sure. It's but an yeah. odd scene. It's an, some odd it choices. An odd and again, uh, Colin Higgins, first of all, uh, who was the director and writer, but did not play Wedge Antilles in Star Wars. Now, I don't know if you had noticed that- <laughs> Wait, Is that what he's listed as? Uh, yes and no. You see, there was another Colin Higgins- who was one of the three actors to play Wedge Antilles. Oh. Two that were actually in A New Hope. There's, oh I guess, God. a Can scene Can we get away from Wedge Antilles? Instead, <laughs> instead of the guy from Local Hero, they have this guy oh. named Colin Higgins, who wow. then got to be known in the Star Wars community as Fake Wedge. Oh, okay. And so that dogged him for the rest of his life, and then he ended up dying a few years ago. Wait, so he died too? So there are no existing- two. Well, Colin Higgins is dead. This Colin Higgins. Yeah. There are no Colin Higginses left, but the other Wedge Antilles. The other Wedge Antilles, as we know. Yeah. Believe me, I I chagrined the day that I decided to post a funny (laughs) Wedge Antilles post on the show's Facebook page, which now every day I get a (laughs) hundred notifications of additional comments. My God, no wonder those two guys just quit out of fear of fan service, (laughs) according to the internet. The David Benioff and uh, David... Benioff and Game of Thrones guys. Yeah. Like you said, it was a little bit heartbreaking. I don't think Sterling Hayden was great in that role. Yeah. The, is he supposed to be like Colonel? Is he supposed to be like Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colonel Sanders? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know whose idea that what was. What kind of corporate, corporate titan is that? The other guy you and, talked about, Henry uh, Henry Jones or whatever. The Henry Jones? But actually, I thought- He was, was hilarious. He, he would have been a better- this. Why would you make that character particularly Southern? I don't like, know. It was neither so funny nor I so appropriate. Probably because it was Sterling Hayden and he was probably like, I got an idea. And the director's probably like, it's fucking Sterling Hayden. I mean, sure, go for it. <laughs> In the uh, commentary track, apparently, I, they were saying that part of the reason why he looks a little bit out of it uh, during this scene is he needed cue cards to remember his lines, and so was constantly looking for yeah. it. And he wasn't, I guess, as experienced doing that as, say, like Marlon Brando, who did that all the time. <laughs> it was also, again, not a, not a great scene. Rushing to a two-pat conclusion. Yes. Even to the point of then sending Dabney Coleman off to Brazil which yeah. actually, I was like, why? What, what do you got here that's so great? Yeah, like, he's Brazil's like, that's a trial. Awesome. Why? But I guess, I guess in 1980, in 80, we Brazil, thought of Brazil as some sort of horrible fate to be sentenced to. And even you know the the movie. I was thinking he's going to love it. Cue cards, girls in string bikinis yeah, on the beach. Exactly, this is that was made for him. And then what? He gets boiled or eaten alive or something. Well, he or disappears. He gets. Oh, kidnapped. he gets kidnapped by. What? Uh, I think that I don't remember Indigenous the politically tribesmen. incorrect phrase that they use, <laughs> but something. Uh, yes, yeah, something along those lines. 
I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify Chris's final line from this week's episode? I love that. that I think that's great. Do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. Well, Chris, would you like to move on to some of our other segments? Yes. What would you like to do first? Uh, How about headlines? Great. Headlines? Headlines. Headlines. Since today is Halloween, even though by the time you're listening to this, it'll be like the week before Thanksgiving or something. I thought that you would enjoy the story that for these vampires, a shared blood meal lets friendship take flight. This is the story that vampire bats, Chris, might have a nasty reputation, according to NPR, but these bloodthirsty beasts can be both generous and loyal when it comes to their fellow bats. I believe it. Captive, common vampire bats will share their food with hungry bat companions and forge such a bond, Chris, that they continue to hang out with these buddies once they've been released back into the wild. Huh. Bats are very maligned, says Gerald Carter of the Ohio State University. And vampire bats are the most maligned of bats. Yeah. Well, vampire, they're a lot like actors, uh, except that they do keep in touch. Like, <laughs> you throw actors together, you do a show, yeah. and you're like, oh, you Dude, know, we, we, we are going to be friends. best friends forever, gonna... and they never hear Within from weeks, you're gone. You Chris, do you know that bats need to lap up about a tablespoon of blood every night? No, I didn't know that. If they miss two nights, they get very weak, and missing three nights means death. Similar for a Broadway actor. <laughs> I love bats. Uh, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not afraid of bats. I love. I would love to have a bat in my house. Well, you know what? Christmas is coming. Speaking of bat shit crazy, you know where that expression comes from? Um, people who would eat guano for protein would then go insane. It was like mercury with yeah, mad, exactly. Mad hatters. Guano has some weird stuff in it. Yeah, shit. You... I mean, it's it's shit. Well, it's not the shit that makes you crazy. It's like some cave chemical or something. Oh. I'm making that up totally off the top of my head. You know what? So am I. Did you see the story today? I don't like to do politics on the podcast, but did you see that the cybersecurity advisor to President Trump, Rudy Giuliani, had to go to the Apple store to get his (laughs) iPhone unlocked? Did you see this story? No. It just broke today. <laughs> this guy. Um, just the fact that he had to go to the Apple store is funny. <laughs> Rick Shapiro, who's a reporter for NBC News, is living through one of the greatest two-week cycles in the news business. Uh-huh. Because he is the reporter who last week reported that Giuliani accidentally butt-dialed him <laughs> on two different occasions last fall <laughs> and left these long, rambling, inadvertent recordings where he was sort of talking to someone else about what he had just talked to Rick on the phone about right. on the record. And then he got these bizarre recordings realizing that, oh, he's, he butt dialed me and he's telling someone else all this stuff he wished he had heard on yeah. the record. So and anyway, they published this stuff in some sort of acrobatic reportage where they figure out how to get, is this on the record? Is this off the record? Right. If you, is a butt dial on the record or off the record? I don't know. I can't wait to hear what the Supreme Court says. <laughs> well, the article's already out. So I think Rick Shapiro has spoken. Giuliani also famously created a hyperlink in one of his tweets and someone was able to purchase the name of the G20.in that he accidentally put in. They bought the hyperlink and then trolled Giuliani by making the link lead to a webpage that read Donald J. Trump is a traitor to our country. That was, another, <laughs> that was only because Giuliani tweeted an inadvertent link. And then uh, he was spotted at the Genius Bar uh, because he could not- <laughs> I'm surprised they let him in. <laughs> He couldn't remember his passcode. <laughs> so, so a former Apple Store employee who was present 
told NBC that the passcode mistake was, quote, very sloppy, adding, quote, Trump had just named him as an informal advisor on cybersecurity, and here he couldn't even master the fundamentals of securing your own device. I've never felt more cyber secure. Uh, but it does say a former Apple Store employee. True. So True. <laughs> Could be related to that. It's like, say what you will about Julian. He might be able to remember his passcode, but he can sure abuse power. I'll tell you, as a content presidency, it's hard to beat. Now, Chris, my last headline is one that I think, you know, I know that you're a you're you're a seeker. You're you're seeking oh, yeah. spiritual fitness and happiness. Yep. And you are someone who thinks a lot about your presence in the world and how to be the best version of yourself. Yes. Well, there's a new study that is able to offer you, Chris, the key to happiness. Do you know what it's about? Do you know what do you know what the key to happiness is? Well, I'll tell you. No. It's to only care about yourself and no one else. Oh, boy. Let me guess. Is this from the friggin' Manhattan Institute? No, this is uh, research. Or some other conservative institution? This is from the, the Ayn Rand lovers of America? Uh, no, this is from the Queen's University of Belfast in the UK. Say no more. And a new study shows that narcissists <laughs> who have an inflated sense of self-importance and disregard for others are less likely to be depressed and stressed out than normal people. Okay. I'll buy it. They looked at 700 adults with the personality disorder of narcissism to determine why they appear to thrive in society. <laughs> Among their toxic traits, narcissists engage in risky behavior, have grand delusions, show little empathy for others, and don't experience much shame or guilt. We wondered, said the doctor, if this is so socially toxic, why is it on the rise? Well, the results showed that grandiose narcissism correlates with very positive components of mental toughness, such as confidence and goal orientation, protecting against symptoms of depression and perceived stress. So, Chris, that's the secret. Care only for yourself and no one else. Now you know. Wow, what a scoop. Would you like to- I mean, there are only some small drawbacks to being such a narcissist. Well, like you tend to- What are you willing to do to succeed? Embarrassingly butt dial reporters every now and again, or- Have to go to the Genius Bar to get your phone unlocked. <laughs> I didn't care for it. All right, Chris, I'm not going to crow just yet about how right I have been proven so far in our new segment, The Bomb Squad, because it is an emerging story just as we sit here recording. Yes. And it hasn't been released yet. Well, it is <laughs> It is released into who's listening now. Oh, yes. Because right, it comes right, out right, next right, week. Right, right, right. As we sit here, it comes out next week. Are we talking about Ford or Motherless No, we're Brooklyn. talking about Motherless Brooklyn. Yes. The reviews are in. The box office is not yet in. I want to wait for the box office to of complete course. what I believe to be a little bit of a home run trot that I will take around the recording studio. However, this week's Bomb Squad, and I really liked Matt's Bomb Squad sound effect that he put up there. This week's Bomb Squad is an interesting one. And I will say, I don't know about for you, but this set off the radar the first time I saw this trailer. Roland Emmerich's Midway. There's this kid. He didn't think he could cut it. I figured it was just the usual jitters. I take him under my wing. He was wanting to be scared. Pearl Harbor is the greatest intelligence failure in American history. This can never happen again. 
I want to make it right. At least some of the boys still want to fight. The Japanese are planning something bigger. So what's the target? We believe it's Midway. Washington disagrees. Washington is wrong. If we lose, then Japanese own the West Coast. Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles. We'll burn. We got the order to launch. We need to throw a punch so they know what it feels like to be hit. We're talking about a couple dozen planes. It's all Japanese fleet. This isn't a fair fight. these men. They'll follow you anywhere. If you know that you came through, when people are counting on you. You'll be able to face anything. It's not just the jingoistic inanity. Mm -hmm. It's not just the hackneyed cliche of purposeful walking through militaristic hallways and the bursting through important doors in order to break devastating news with a few words. It's not just that Roland Emmerich never filmed anything in less than an extreme close up. It's not just the unfortunately kind of janky CGI. Yeah. It's just what? Why? Yeah. So Midway apparently is an independent film. Oh, really? I, was, I, I, was, I just learned today. First of all, and also they showed like a huge cast of all these people. And I was like, really? I thought this was literally just the same guy being shown over and over and over again. <laughs> it's the same guy in a greasy T-shirt yeah. and a short haircut and a leather jacket. It's like all these people are in it. Poor Patrick Wilson. You deserve better, Mr. Wilson. Yeah. I wonder what he did. <laughs> and, I was, and that's another thing. Like I know I mentioned this like in rest, when somebody's like, well, I don't know. Washington's got a different opinion. Well, Washington's wrong. It's like, whoa, whoa. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Let's just calmly like, yeah, look at the intelligence how about some together. Re- how about some reason? Yeah, come on. No, they're wrong. Yeah, you don't have a snit. You're already <laughs> wearing glasses. Oh, my God. I guess, you know, if you're Rudy Giuliani, you're probably going to see this. And look, I mean, you know, they are opening it on Veterans Day weekend. True. I guess in a piece of counter-programming, people might go see it. I saw the headlines like Roland Emmerich's $100 million independent film. You know, I'm not sure how that works, but... Yeah, the phrase independent film gets thrown around. You know what used to be the most expensive independent film was Stargate. Mm. You remember that, which just turned 25. And people were like, it's 25 years of Stargate. I was like, who cares? <laughs> Not an anniversary we need to celebrate. But I do remember when it came out, it was almost an interesting story. But there's also, I believe, directed by Roland uh, Emmerich. And, you know, he had to scrounge around to get this money, to get this made and had all sorts of false starts and stuff like that. So when it was somewhat successful, it was uh, sort of a triumph. And I guess this is the same. Maybe. It says, you know, Variety says he found himself hustling to get his latest action epic to the screen. But it's a $100 million budget outside the studio system. Which is pretty amazing. I guess. I mean, I, I just that's a lot of money for this movie to make. You're definitely not going to get the Japanese audience. 
based on the way that trailer is cut. <laughs> like, it'd be one thing if it was, like, the Battle of Midway, but we're presented with some actual, yes. like, living, breathing Japanese characters who might feel strongly about their side of the battle, right. as opposed to just jingoistic American beefcake. But I don't think the money was spent there. So anyway, that's this week's Bomb Squad. Yeah, that looks pretty crappy. Chris, I anything? don't have anything else. All right. In that case, until next week, it's a shame that this week's movie didn't date more than it did. But thank you to the women who inspired it, who made it, and who have never let the struggle die. You've made us all better. I'd like to thank you. I do. I, I thank you for your companionship, your stamina, your horse sense, and 101 laughs. I also enjoyed very much looking at your shining hair and your shining face. Ruben, I think you like me. I do. I was going to buy you a tie clip or some shaving lotion or something, but I didn't know what you'd like. Norma, what I've had from you has been sumptuous. Mm-hmm.